Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Lamentations, uh, chapter 2. This is the second chapter. It's also the second acrostic poem. All of the chapters are acrostic poems, except for the chapter 5, um, of Lamentations. They are believed to have been written by Jeremiah. Now, an acrostic poem, what, it, what acrostic is, is basically, uh, if you look at the chapters, um, most of the chapters are 22 verses long. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, I think it's chapter 3 or chapter 4 is 66 verses long, and so every few ch- verses is starts with a new letter, but they are acrostic poems. They were written by Jeremiah, and uh, they were written basically right after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians when the, when the, uh, when the Jews of Jerusalem and, and Judah went into captivity in Babylon. The temple had just been destroyed. The homes and the walls of Jerusalem had been uh, destroyed. And uh, tradition, although the Bible doesn't tell us, but tradition has it that Jeremiah sat in a cave and just was just observing what was going on and his heart was just breaking and he's, and he's composing these poems as he's, as he's just watching the devastation and, the, and the, just the, the grief over what had happened. Um, in, it's interesting if you read through, um, and we will obviously, but the first nine verses, every single verse tells of what God had done to them, how he had punished them. Now, as bad as the punishment was, what was worse for Jeremiah, what was worse for the inhabitants of Judah, was the fact that it was the Lord their God that had inflicted this punishment, all these horrors on them. Now, it probably didn't come as a shock to Jeremiah, and it shouldn't have come as a shock to any of the inhabitants of Judah, because this was a literal fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy was written, of course, by Moses. It was the God had given Moses the commandments to give to the children of Israel when they first came into the promised land as he was establishing them as a nation. And God had told them, if you obey me, if you follow my commandments, I'm going to do all these blessings. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is known as the blessings and cursings. And, he, and so he says, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. You know, you'll be a... You'll be a uh, a loner nation to other nations. One of you will flee, or ten of you will chase ten thousand. Or you know, I'm paraphrasing heavily, but basically all these blessings that God would do. Then the second part of that is the cursings. If they failed to obey God, if they have failed to heed His warnings and follow Him with their whole heart, all these terrible things would come on them. And if you sit down and you take uh, Lamentations and you take Deuteronomy chapter 28 and you put them side by side and you start reading it, you go, wow, God kept his word. God fulfilled his promise. You know, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in Galatians 6, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What Jeremiah is addressing here, or what he's talking about here, um, are all the blessings that the people of Judah 
as God's people enjoyed. But now they're being removed. God is taking them away from them because of their continued sin and their continued disobedience. You guys know the story of the prodigal son, right? He was blessed. He had all these blessings. He was you know, in the house of his father, and all these things were great. And then he wanted his father's inheritance, and, and his father gave it to him, and he went off, and he, he just blew all that money, all that was, that was an inheritance, and he just blew it away on wine, woman, and song. And when, he, when the money ran out, the friends ran out, all the good stuff ran out. And he, and he found himself basically feeding the pigs. You guys know the story. Jesus told it in the New Testament. And remember the prodigal son. He was sitting there and wallowing in his mire and thinking back to all those blessings that he had in his father's house. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever backslidden from the Lord. I'm, I, I have. And I've gotten to the point, and praise God that he brought me to that point where I was so low, where I, I look back and I go, man, look where I'm at right now. And that gunk and look what I what, look what I've given away what, what I've what I forsook and it was that that wanted me to draw back to the Lord and so Jeremiah as he's looking he's looking at you know he's recalling all these things that God had taken away from him but it's all these things that they had that God had blessed them with but because of their sin they're gone they've taken God has taken them away from them so chapter 2 verse 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast down from heaven to earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. He covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud. Now, when you think of that, you think of, of course, darkness. Uh, you know, some people say that there's a, you know, there's a cloud following me. And basically what, they, what they're talking about is they feel oppressed or they have this sense of foreboding. Um, if you've ever traveled through, you know, clouds up in the mountains on a mountain pass or something, you lose your sense of direction. And uh, that is basically what Jeremiah is talking about. It's a lack of communication also. In Lamentations chapter 3, we won't get to that today, but in Lamentations 3 verse 44, it says, You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. So, so that communication is broken. There's this mist. There's this heaviness. He also says, You've cast down from heaven to earth the beauty of Israel. What was glorious was now ugly because of sin. You know, in both Isaiah, and we went through Isaiah uh, about a month or so ago, um, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, there are chapters that talk about Lucifer, Satan. And he's described as having once been beautiful and glorious in heaven. He's called the son of the morning and he's called the anointed cherub. But because of his rebellion, he was cast out of heaven. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that you and I have been raised up together and we sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've got that glory. It's not our glory. Of course, it's what Jesus has given us. His glory, but we're seated together with Him in heavenly places. And Paul in Colossians says, Then if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. You know, we have that position in Christ, and we're to be focusing on that rather than things on the earth. But James, in his letter, warns us 
If we have bitter envy and self-seeking in our hearts, he says, our wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And you know, Christians who live according to the flesh, they're spiritually ugly. They're inglorious. And then he says that they didn't, that God didn't remember his footstool in the day of his anger. And what that really is speaking about is the abiding presence of of the Lord. There are many verses, but one of them, Psalms 132, verse 7 says, Let us go into his tabernacle, let us worship at his footstool. And it goes on and describes about all the blessings of being uh, in God's presence. And later on it says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. And he says, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. I mean, the Jews had these promise that God was going to dwell in the temple. He was going to dwell in that Holy of Holies at the Ark of the Covenant there. And, and you know, it, he was abiding. His presence was there. But because of their sin and because of their disobedience, that was no longer the case. Now, I know sometimes as Christians... Um, you know, we sing that one song that's composed by David. I think it's Psalm 51. We talked about it Wednesday night. You know, you know where, where it's David's prayer of penitence, basically, after he was uh, caught by, basically, Nathan the, the prophet went to David, and David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he ended up killing Bathsheba's wife. And he thought everything was cool. Nobody knew what was going on. And then God spoke to Nathan and said, Go speak to David. And, and so Nathan the prophet approached David and confronted him in his sin. And David composed Psalm 51. And in that psalm, and, and I've sang it sometimes in my, you know, when I'm repenting of my sin, I've, I've cried out, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And that's what David quoted in that psalm. But you know, as New Testament believers, Jesus has promised to never leave or forsake the true believer in Christ. And that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He, he has been given to each one of us as, a, as believers as a down payment, kind of, if you will, sort of like a deposit for our salvation. The Bible says He's a sign and a seal of our salvation. And so the Holy Spirit's not going to leave you as a Christian. However, however, Paul in Ephesians 4 warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And what you end up with when when people are when Christians are not walking in obedience to the Lord and when they're when they're backslidden, you end up with carnal Christians who look no different than um, they're weak, just like, and they act just like the people in the world all around them. They're no longer salt and light. They're spiritually ugly. They're just like everybody else. And so the first three blessings God removed from his people here that Jeremiah is addressing is their communication to and with him, their glory, and his abiding presence from them. Jeremiah is just reflecting on, on those things that are, are, have been removed from them because of their sin. Verse 2, The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. 
God tore down what was their security. Their security was in their homes. Their security was in their strongholds, even in their princes or in their government. Whatever it was that they trusted in other than God, God removed from them. And God does that sometimes in your and my lives. If we put a trust in something or someone other than Him, quite often He'll remove that from you so that you realize, man, I'm just trusting in something that's not God to get us to turn back to Him. Lamentations 2 verse 3. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back His right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring all around. A horn in the the Bible is basically a euphemism for power. It speaks about someone's power, their horn. It says He drew back His right hand from before the enemy. Basically, what God did was he had removed protection or his protection from them. Now, I'd already quoted Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. But Hosea chapter 6 also talks about those people who sow to the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Paul in Romans 2 Verse 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Immorality, immortality, not immorality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Those things that we bring on ourselves when we're in disobedience to God. Verse 4. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. With his right hand, like an adversary, he has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. Notice that he says, God is like an enemy. He's like an adversary. When you and I, when we continue in unrepentant, unconfessed sin, God will seem like an enemy to us as He's pursuing us and chasing us. And I think we get that feeling as a result of a distance in our relationship with Him. You get to a point where you don't recognize His love and His chastening, but you think God's out to get you. And I've heard that from Christians. You know, they're not walking with the Lord and things are going lousy in their life because of bad choices they've made. And they'll come to me and they'll go, man, it's, it's, God's out to get me. He's punishing me. I mean, He's, he's just he's, he's, he's against me. And if you're a true believer, no, He's not against you. He's trying to draw you to Him. As a loving father chastens his children, so God chastens those whom He loves. But if you've been in constant, you know, you've been out of relationship, out of fellowship with the Lord, he'll seem like an enemy to you. He'll seem like an adversary. You know, David, when he was chastened by the Lord, you can read it throughout his Psalms. 
And David was chastened many times, but he always recognized that it was of the Lord and he would accept it because David had that relationship with the Lord. Yeah, he blew it. He sinned, but he would also repent very quickly. And, and he had that, that close relationship with the Lord. That's why the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect. Nobody was perfect, right? But he kept short accounts with God. And I think that's what's important for you and I as Christians. So he removed their sense of security in their relationship with him, and he became to them as an adversary. Verse 6, He has done violence to his tabernacle, As if it were a garden, he has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. This is what really blew away the Jews and Judah, and and the people of Jerusalem, because, you know, God had had given them directions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant, and then later on how to build the the temple, gave them the exact dimensions, told them how to do the feasts. He gave them all the instructions of all the observances that they were to do as His people. And so they would do all these feasts, they would hold all these Sabbaths, they would, you know, the altar was a holy place, the sanctuary, even the king and the priest, all that stuff, you know, it was important and it had 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 meaning, but it came to a point where it no longer meant anything to the Lord. Why? Because their hearts had gone from Him. And you know, I think as Christians sometimes we can get that way where, you know, we, we go through the motions, of coming to church or, or you know, acting Christian or whatever, and yet our hearts are so far from the Lord. And God says, you know, those things that you're offering to me, it means nothing to me because your heart's not following hard after me. It's known as dead religion. And he removed the fruitfulness of their worship. In Isaiah, Isaiah was one of the prophets that prophesied to to Judah and Jerusalem before the destruction, before all this stuff happened, even before Jeremiah. And God had spoke through Isaiah to his people at that point when they were going through the motions. He says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from my hand to trample my trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. This is God's heart. To his people. He said, you're going through the motions and I hate it. Because their hearts, they they had a hard heart and they were unrepentant in their sin. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, writes a letter to the church 
in Sardis. Church in Sardis, one of the churches there. They were Christians, at least in name anyway. They went through the motions of going to church. They were probably like a lot of other churches that are out there today. They have lots of programs, lots of activities. I mean, they're doing all the stuff. And Jesus says to the church in Sardis, He says, I know your works, that you have a name, and that you are alive, but you're dead. Why? Because of sin. Because of unrepentance. Because of hard hearts. Verse 8. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. You know, because of their sin and disobedience, I mean, the the priests and everybody, they're just just sitting there, they're just mourning and weeping over what's happened. And they have lost their ability to see and hear things from the Lord. The priests no longer receive vision from the Lord vision had ceased. If you're here this morning and maybe you feel like you're not receiving anything new from the Lord, it's like, you know, I feel like my prayers, they just they feel like they're just bouncing off the ceiling whenever I pray and I'm not hearing a fresh word from the Lord. It could be, I'm not saying that it is necessarily, but it could be because you've hardened your heart to what He has already told you to do. If God's been speaking to you over and over and over again about something and you continually just kind of blow it off and you go, you know what, I I don't want to deal with that. But Lord God, speak to me over here, you know, do this work in my life. And God's like, you know what, first do those works, get that part of your life taken care of, and then we'll move on from there. But so often we kind of want to shove that, whatever it is, we want to shove that aside. I don't want to deal with that. But Lord, can you do a work in me? Can you speak to me? You know, answer my prayers. God says, no. Deal with that issue first, and then come to me. And then we'll move on from there. Verse 11, My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the people, excuse me, because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. I mean, he's just watching the infants, you know, they're, they're just looking to their mommies and daddies saying, you know, I need some food, you know, I, I need, and there's nothing to offer them because, there's the, because of the devastation that has occurred. Jeremiah is talking about his bitterness when he says, my bile is poured out on the ground. Whenever I read that word, I, I, get, a, I get a mental picture right away in my mind. Because, you know, I was in third grade, and, and, uh, and I don't remember how it started, but I just remember getting really, really sick. And I started throwing up this green stuff, and it was burning every time it came up. But, well, it turned out I had a, a kidney and a bladder infection, and I had got rushed to the hospital. I spent three days in the hospital every few hours getting penicillin shots as a little third grader. And uh, I was sicker than a dog, and I remember that. Ugh, that, that. If you've ever experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's terrible. 
Um, and so whenever I see that picture, that bile, I'm like, oh, man, that is awful, you know. And, and this, is, this is Jeremiah. He's looking at this, and he's just, man, this is so bitter. This is so awful. You know, it's interesting. Jeremiah, I mean, he's an old guy now. He was called by the Lord as a young man. In fact, at the time that God called him, says, I'm going to make you a prophet to my people. And, and Jeremiah's like, man, I'm just a young guy. I'm just a kid. Nobody's going to listen to me. And God says, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. You just be faithful and do what I tell you to do. And so for like 40 some odd years, Jeremiah has been prophesying God's word to his people. And the people hated Jeremiah. He never had a single convert. He never had one person say, Jeremiah, you're right. Please, you know, I want to pray for forgiveness. And he never had a following of people. People hated him. People disregarded him. Some people even tried to kill him. They certainly abused him and persecuted him. And you would think, after 40 some odd years of these stubborn people that refused to listen, that finally he'd be sitting back in, his, in, that, in that cave and going, ha, yeah, they're getting what they deserve. I mean, that's what I would do. <laughs> that's probably why God didn't call me to be a prophet like that. But look what Jeremiah did. He's weeping over the people of Jerusalem. Jeremiah didn't rejoice over finally being vindicated. You know, finally, finally what I've said is, is happening. You know, he didn't even say that. He's just weeping and mourning over the destruction and the, the misery that the people are in. And I think, you know, sometimes we think that, you know, God used Jeremiah just as a prophet to minister to the people, but God was doing a work in Jeremiah's heart as well, just like he did in Moses' people, in Moses' heart. He's making, he's giving Jeremiah, just like he did to Moses, just like he did to so many other prophets, his heart. Jeremiah had the Lord's heart, grieving over the sin of the people. Samuel is another example. Remember, Samuel was the prophet to Israel when, when, uh, when they wanted a king. And, uh, and so God allowed them to have Saul as king, first king of Israel. And, and he started out okay, but he didn't finish well. And he ended up getting into witchcraft and all kinds of junk. And uh, he was disobedient. And so the Lord removed him from being king over Israel and appointed David in his place. And it's really a sad ending to the story of Samuel's relationship to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 35. It says, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. He mourned for him. I mean, he had a heart. He just, his heart was broken. You know, sometimes I think we can get here, you know, we can get so self-righteous as Christians and, you know, we know the truth and we see people in error and we can point out their error and we can judge and say, you know, you're, you're doing all this wickedness and stuff. And sometimes we kind of detach ourselves and it's those wicked people, those bad sinners that are doing this or that or whatever. And God wants us to have a heart of, of compassion and mercy and to weep for the sin over people, rather than, you know, gloating over it, weeping as we see that they're being deceived by the enemy. Verse 13, How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. 
They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. You know, not only were the people corrupt, but the prophets were corrupt. They gave false visions. There were a lot of prophets during the time of Jeremiah. You know, God had called Jeremiah a prophet to the people, and, and, and Jeremiah was speaking the truth. But there were a lot of other prophets, at least in name anyways, who were saying just the opposite. Oh, God doesn't want to punish you. You know, you're God's chosen people. He's never going to forsake Jerusalem. And, and they were telling the people really what the people wanted to hear. You know, we see that today, do too. Don't be surprised by the trend that you're seeing in churches today. Why? Because I believe we're close to Jesus' return. I believe we're close to the end. And Paul warned Timothy it would be like this as the end of the age approaches. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So when you start to see the, the apostasy and the things that are going on in the church today, it just breaks my heart sometimes. In fact, I get angry sometimes when I see what some pastors and, and leaders and church ministries, you know, what they say to the people. And it's like, man, what are you doing? But, you know, the people kind of want to hear it. But to me, it's also a sign that, you know what, we're getting close to the end of the age. Jesus is, recom- is coming back soon. Verse 15, all who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? You can kind of sense that they're just mocking. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. You know, to add insult to injury, the enemies of Israel would rejoice over their punishment, even taking credit for it. Look what we've done. You know, we finally wiped Israel off the face of the map. That's, you know, the phrase that you hear nowadays. I remember when I uh, first gave my heart back to the Lord, and and, uh, I was in the military at the time, and I got stationed in Duluth, and, you know, I I used to smoke pot and do different things and stuff, and I just kind of completely gave that stuff up, and I just rededicated my life to the Lord, and I I drove into Duluth, and that was my new duty station, and... uh, and I remember there, you know, I started witnessing to people around me and sharing, you know, what God had done in my life. And, and I got the kind of a reputation of being this goody two-shoes for a while. Well, you know, I stumbled. I fell. I fell into temptation a few times and stuff. And God was doing a work in me. He was, he was, he was doing that work, but it wasn't overnight for me. I mean, I stumbled. I struggled. And uh, I remember one time, you know, finally these guys kept trying to get me to go to their parties. And I said, no, I just don't want to do it. And then one time in my weakness, I showed up at this party. And you could just see the glee on their faces. Ah, you're like one of us. Anyways, that added insult to injury because I knew it didn't belong there. And it's like, ah, there goes my witness. I just blew it. Well, God's gracious and he does the work. And, and uh, anyways, here I am today. Praise God. <laughs> Verse 17. You see, back in these other verses I just quoted, the enemies of Israel were taking credit for what they had done. But here in verse 17, Jeremiah says, The Lord has done what He purposed. 
He has fulfilled his words, which he commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. And he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. It wasn't the enemies that did it. It was the Lord who did all of this because he was punishing his people. He fulfilled his word to them, not only through Jeremiah, not only through Isaiah and other prophets, but like I mentioned at the beginning here, he fulfilled Deuteronomy chapter 28. God in his forbearance kept warning them. He kept giving them opportunity after opportunity to repent. He kept sending people, prophets to his people, pleading with them to return to the Lord. And they refused, and they refused for years and generations. And so finally, this punishment, God's not going to be mocked. If, you, you know, if, if you're going to reap to the flesh, you're going to sow corruption. And this is exactly what happened. And their punishment was justly deserved. And I think about our culture and our nation. If, and I'd probably say more likely when, this nation is judged for turning its back on the Lord... It's going to be a just punishment. We're going to, we'll, we'll deserve it. We'll say, Lord God, you're being cruel. You're being hard. No, no, no. We deserve it because we've turned our back on him for so long. And, you know, it's amazing that God hasn't done anything yet. That God's allowed us to continue. But that's God's grace and God's mercy. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And that's what God's trying. You know, he's wanting, maybe that's why you're here this morning to hear this message. God is trying to tell you, you need to turn back to me. Turn back to me. And he's giving you one more opportunity to repent and come back to the Lord. Verse 18. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands towards Him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Jeremiah here is pleading with the people. You start, you know, you guys, pour out your hearts. Start praying to the Lord. You know, when I think of pouring out your heart like water, you ever tried, you know, pouring out, you know, you start tipping over a cup and it's like, you know, well, I'm usually kind of clumsy, but you try to do it, everything pours out. That's, that's the idea that he's saying. It's like completely empty yourself before him. Don't hold anything back. Come to him in complete humility. A bit, just complete just humbleness. before Fall down before God. That's what Jeremiah is telling the people, to seek the Lord in complete humility. And now this is the the close of the chapter, the last two verses here. And here Jeremiah is interceding for the survivors in Jerusalem. Verse 20. See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the woman eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? I mean, that sounds terrible. He's talking about cannibalism. And you go, man, that is terrible. But you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God had warned them generations ago, if you continue in disobedience, you're going to turn into cannibals. The, uh, literal fulfillment. God's not mocked, folks. Literal fulfillment. God had warned them. Josephus tells us that it literally happened as it was prophesied here. You know, Jeremiah is not judging. He's not telling them, you know, I told you so. He's observing this. His heart is breaking, and he is praying on behalf of the people. 
And he continues, Should the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. If you notice how Jeremiah is speaking in these last two verses here, he's personifying the punishment as though God were punishing him. What's going on? Well, this is what's happened. Jeremiah has totally identified himself with the people he was ministering to. He wasn't separating like those people, God, you're punishing. He said, no, you're punishing us. He is identifying with the people. That's the heart of a true intercessor. Galatians 6, Paul writes this, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I think what God's speaking to us as a fellowship He wants us to bear one another's burdens, you know, to grieve over the sin. You see a brother or a sister in sin. It shouldn't be like, you know, you rotten person. It should be, man, your heart should be breaking for him. And you should be praying for him and interceding for him and and coming to him and approaching them, you know, as as necessary and as proper. But But our heart should be breaking for one another when we see one another caught up in a sin. Now, that's the end of this chapter. And uh, tradition has it, like I said, that Jeremiah was sitting in a cave. It's known as Jeremiah's Grotto. And uh, he's there observing all this stuff, and he's just he's weeping. He's composing these poems. And that cave, it's interesting, Jeremiah's Grotto is at the same location, just a little bit below Calvary, where Jesus Christ died on the cross. In fact, you know, Calvary, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the place of the skull, right? Golgotha is the place of the skull. And the reason why they call it the place of the skull is because there's two caves that look like eye sockets in the side of this, this elevation, the side of this rocky crag there. And it's tradition, traditionally believed that this is, he's sitting in one of those eye sockets at Calvary, weeping and lamenting over the, the destruction and the, and the punishment that's going on. And yet... Here, years later, Jesus, our Savior, will be in that same location, dying for their sins, dying for your and my sins on the 